We have been looking through the uh, book of Genesis, and we've come to a point that I, I have to admit, I, I toyed with whether or not we should read through the chapter, something that I like to do. I love to hear the, the words of Scripture read publicly. But I thought, how many people are going to want to hear a genealogy read? So I... I Gave that some thought, and then I thought, well, maybe I should look to do something slightly different than that. But I still want to convey the general information that's found in Genesis chapter 10, because unlike many Christians, I don't have a problem reading genealogies. It's not that I'm thrilled with them. I don't do genealogical studies in my own life or anything like that. It's just that I have learned that if I will track down, trace out the names that surface in genealogies, I will uncover some incredible truth at some point. I may have to work for it, but I will find it, and it will be worth the wait and worth the work. Well, readers of the Bible might expect that once the flood has come through, uh, everything is good. Sin is gone. It's been washed away, and, and everybody's on the right page. Uh, that's what we might think, but that's not what happens. In fact, what happens is that the flood only seems to slow sin down some. It does not disappear from Earth's history. And that's why we read just a little bit of some disturbing things that we haven't yet covered in Genesis chapter 9. So in Genesis 9, we read, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So we see a number of things in this uh, passage of Scripture. First, we see that Noah has chosen the same vocation as Adam. He has become an expert in agricultural pursuits, right? He also became the first vintner. Unfortunately for us, he also, according to Scripture, became the first person to get drunk on wine. Now, whether that means he was the first person to ever get drunk or just the first person to get drunk on wine might be debatable. I'm not certain of that, but one thing is clear. He was the first vintner and the first person to get drunk on wine. And getting drunk led to some embarrassing disclosures, pun intended. Drinking alcoholic beverages not only leads to problems for the drinker, it leads to problems for other people. That's what we read in this story, right? Ham sees his father naked, and he tells his two brothers. And as ugly as this storyline is, it reveals a universal truth regarding how we human beings have been created. We have been created to share what's on our mind. The serpent, you'll remember, asked, did God really say... And even though Eve is not speaking here, she shares what's on her mind by giving some of the fruit that she has eaten to her husband. 
And then we read in Genesis chapter 4 that at that time some people began to call upon and in Hebrew mean to call out, began to preach and, and share with others their faith. And then we read Lamech having a conversation with his two wives, the first polygamist in history. He shares with his two wives that he has killed a young man for merely wounding him. And then we read this story. Ham tells his brother, brothers about seeing their father naked. This is a universal truth. We have been created to share what's on our mind. And it's very well stated in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, we read, But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we speak. In Matthew 5.15, do you remember the words of Jesus? No one puts a lamp, you know, lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, right, or under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to all the house. This is a discussion in Matthew 5.15 of human beings, not of lamps particularly. You and I are not made to think or do things alone. We are made to do things, to think things together. Now, Seventh-day Adventists have a very well-known writer whose name is Ellen White. And she made it very clear that you and I love to share our mindset with other people. She said it is a law of God that whoever believes the truth as it is in Jesus will make it known. Now, if you're thinking about what she's saying and remembering what we just read from 2 Corinthians, she's commenting on that Bible passage. But she calls sharing our mindset with others a law of God. This is how we are wired. Christians tell others why because we're made to do this. But she goes on. She says, the ideas and convictions of the individual mind will seek for expression. Here she formulates this sentence like a universal truth. This is how all thinking creatures are made. We share what we think. We share what we do with other people. She goes on. And says, it is the nature of unbelief and infidelity and resistance to the grace of God to make themselves felt and heard. Also, it's not just Christians that share their mindset, that share what they do. It's everyone in the world. Unbelievers also speak against God to other people. Why? Because we just read, the ideas and convictions of the individual mind will seek for expression. Even more, she says, the mind actuated by these principles is always striving to make a place for itself and to obtain adherence. What does she mean by that? We all want to be comfortable, right? We want to be comfortable when we're around other people. And so in varying different ways and degrees, we want them to think like we think, and we want them to do as we do. This is how we're wired. It's true for those who trust in God and those who don't. 
So obviously, this is a pretty good reason why we need to give some careful thought to who we pick as our friends, right? Who we might want to date, who we might want to uh, marry. We eventually become like the people we associate with because we are all built to share our mind, to have people do as we do. We want to make a place for our principles, make a place for the things we believe and think. And so we share them. So Ham sees his father drunk and naked, and immediately he goes out and he tells his brothers. So how do they respond? Do they embrace his thoughts? We don't know if he was laughing or mocking or what he was doing. The Bible doesn't say that particularly. Do they embrace his words and maybe his actions, if any have accompanied his words? Do they? The Bible says no. We keep reading and we read that Shem and Japheth, his two brothers, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Well, now that's a pretty interesting trick. I mean, that, that, that would not be easy to pull off, it seems to me. Be very easy to stumble as you're walking backwards and fall on dad while he's sleeping drunk. But that does not occur. Their faces, we read, were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So, Here's the point of that. Someone tries to influence us to do the wrong thing, we can resist. We can fight back. We can say, hey, I'm, I'm not going down that path with you. I'm going to do something entirely different. The universal truth is we're going to share what's on our mind. If we believe this or that, we're going to tell other people. If we have doubts, if we have questions, we're going to share them with other people. It's how we're wired. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that specifically. But like Shem and Japheth, we can also choose the right path, even if we are, for any reason, hanging around the wrong kind of people who are sharing kinds of things we don't want to hear, wanting us to do things we don't want to do. We simply make different choices than they do, and we walk down a different path. Well, speaking of universal truths, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 are universal in scope. We read earlier, read, we read this earlier, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with who? With mankind, right? Forever. Genesis 6 verse 3. We find out that this first part of the stories in Genesis is embracing the entire world. And we should never forget that. Then, of course, we read in Genesis chapter 10, the beginnings of mankind scattering, you know, throughout the earth, finding a place for themselves, settling down in various locations. These are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Children were born to them after the flood. And then they scattered. This is a map that shows a little bit of where they collected but also where they scattered. So you see the area in green, that's where the descendants of Ham mostly lived. And then you see the area in yellow, and that's where Shem's people 
ended up, and then the reddish-tinged area, Japheth's people. Now, if you look at the little box that's kind of in the top middle part, you will find that it corresponds with that other box down in the bottom left corner, and it basically says to us that uh, people that we come to learn occupy the area we call Canaan, they were Ham's descendants, and they pretty much dominated that, that area for some time. The sons of Japheth, seven, are identified in Scripture. You'll see in this chart that I created that only two of them are really pursued in terms of their genealogy. The, others, the other sons are mentioned, but only two family lines are really traced out. Genesis chapter 10, as we, can, as we can see here and as we will see as we move on, does not take a lot of interest in the descendants of Japheth, um, probably because they represent, mm, how can I say this, the folk who live farthest away from Canaan and where Israel will come to live. But he has seven sons, and I think it should be uh, pointed out to us that um, this group of people right here, they represent some important people to us as we keep reading through scripture. The Madai are the Medes of the Old Testament. The people of Media who become Media Persia, right? Eventually they join the Babylonians and uh, they uh, attack and defeat Nineveh and then they later become the Media Persian Empire. Yaban, the middle son there in the, in the table, he refers to the Hellenic people, the Grecian people. Now we're going to read a, a lot of uh, Greco-Roman kind of stuff in Scripture as we move in, especially the New Testament, there's some of that. But even in the book of Daniel and, and so on, we, we read of the, the Greek people, the Hellenic people. They settled along the eastern coastland of Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. And then, of course, under that line, we read that name, which we're familiar with, Tarshish. Big trading center, right? Important in the scriptures for commercial purposes. We move on to the sons of Ham, and we see that uh, he had fewer children, but more of his descendants are listed the Bible takes a keener interest in his family line than it did in Genesis 10 of the line of Japheth. The four sons of Ham developed into various entities, countries, people groups, whatever you want to say, within the territories of Africa, Arabia, and Canaan. Nimrod, so let's see if we can point him out and make sure you follow on where I'm at. Nimrod right, very important name, he becomes the, the father, as it were, the, the starter. He, he, likes, he likes creating cities. And one of the most famous cities that he's known for fathering was Babel, Babylon, right? But that's not all. We could go on. 
uh, and see more in that rhyme. But then, but the next one that I want to think about for a while is this actually the sun, Mizraim. Now, unless you've studied Hebrew, you wouldn't know that. That sounds an awful lot like the name of a group of people you're very familiar with in Scripture. They are called the Mitzrayim in Hebrew, the term applied to Egypt and Egyptians. Okay? And uh, obviously, they are very important in Scripture. We're not going to lose sight of them as we read its pages. And then, of course, we see the Philistines. They're very important. We know about them, right? David killing, you know, uh, fighting battles against these people, and, of course, Goliath and so on. And then, of course, Canaan refers to the Syria-Palestine area that we are very clear uh, surface in the Bible, including even the boundaries of Canaan. We read about it in Numbers 34 and 35. Now, when we move into Canaan, we find uh, some some people who are important. I wonder if, well, let's try it. Does that name ring a bell to you? <laughs> Does it ring a bell at all? How about this? Abraham's wife has died, and he needs a burial place. And so he contracts with this guy named who is a Hittite. And he says, can I buy this cave as a burial site for my family from you? You remember that story? Yeah. So Hittites show up in a variety of ways in the Bible. David kills Uriah the Hittite. Solomon marries a Hittite wife. Just below the Hittites are the Jebusites, and they uh, lived primarily in an area that we call Jebus. It was um, a fortress, a kind of a mountain fortress city that we now call Jerusalem, right? David renamed it after he conquered it. So we know these people, we, we know them, and, and what's interesting is to think about all these people and sometimes think, well, how did they get from from being in this godly line of Noah to becoming such ungodly people who actually become the enemies of God and, and of God's people. Definitely makes us think some. When we get to Shem, one of the things we learn is that his table is actually more complex than the previous tables. I, I couldn't really show it like I wanted to, but I tried, okay? Because his line extends behind, beyond just sons and grandsons. His lineage is traced to the fifth generation, not counting, of course, Shem, uh, traced to the fifth generation, which means the Bible writer wants you to pay attention. Not only more of his people listed, but more generations of his people are listed. And why is that? Well, it's because this is the line that Jesus comes from, ultimately. Now, this Hebrew word right here, this name, oh boy, I just crossed it out, didn't I? Let's, let's do that again. Let's, no, no, come on. 
Chronicles. Eber. I'm just going to say it. This, this word actually, his name is where we get the word Hebrew from. He's the father of, of that line of people that we call the Hebrews. Shem had five sons, right? So among these three family lines, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we find that uh, some of these people, come on. We find that some of these people, Elam, right here, fairly important guy. He's on the easternmost edge of uh, where everybody migrates to. And uh, he uh, is part of uh, a group of people that we think of as being in the Media Persia, Babylonian area, kind of like that. One of their most famous cities is Susa. Didn't Daniel spend some time there? He did. The next group, uh, moving on, Azer. Azer. Hmm. They actually, their name uh, became the name of a whole group of people that show up in the Bible, the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians. Shem is the family line above all others because his descendants are traced all the way down to the birth of Jesus. Uh, and of course, more immediately in the book of Genesis, we're going to add to Shem's family line because we're going to find Abraham's story within this line. So the Bible's, you know, interested in all these different people. When we get over to the far right and we see Aram, we think of the Arameans, right? The Bible is very interested in these people throughout its pages. We read in John chapter 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son right? That whoever believes in him might have everlasting life, right? I mean, that's, that's what we read. Well, the part I want to emphasize as we look through Genesis chapter 10 is God's love for the entire world. You are not unfamiliar with the names that you read in this genealogy, and it's because of God's love for everyone. For example, you're familiar with the idea that God took the people of Israel out of uh, what the Bible calls is a sort of like an incinerator uh, area of living, a burning, tyr tyrannical uh, nation, the country of Egypt. We read in Deuteronomy 4 verse 3, has any other God dared to take a nation for himself out of another nation by means of trials, miraculous signs, wonders, war, a strong hand, a powerful arm, and terrifying acts? Yet that is what the Lord your God did for you in Egypt right before your eyes. God rescued Israel from the brutal tyranny of Egypt. That's the message we hear. Yet we often mistakenly think that God did this only for the people of Israel. That is not true, and the Bible is very clear about that. We read in Amos chapter 9, verse 7, Lynn, a text you commented on earlier and showed a little bit of a map. We read God speaking to Israel, saying, Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel? Says the Lord, Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt? And, whoa, stop. And the Philistines from Taptor and the Arameans from Kir? 
Okay, run, run this by me again. God himself is claiming that he performed an Exodus-like event for more nations other than Israel? Really? That's the claim. What family line were the Philistines from? Do you remember? Ham, correct. How about the Arameans? Shem. Shem. But the Arameans definitely become, and the Philistines both, don't they become the enemies of God and of God's people? Did that prevent God, you know, let's say he knew that, that they were going to do that in advance. Did that prevent him from still pulling off an Exodus-like event for them? No. No. But there's more. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 2 some astonishing things. Rephaim formerly inhabited it, though the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a strong and numerous people as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites so that they could dispossess them and settle in their place. Just like Israel faced giants in their land, so the Ammonites faced giants in theirs. And God does this amazing thing. He comes through for both of these nations. The Lord orchestrates a Joshua-like conquest for the Ammonites, not just the Israelites. We keep reading in this amazing passage, Deuteronomy 2, the Lord did the same thing for the descendants of Esau. Well, I thought he was the godless guy. Right? Jacob, Esau, Jacob the good guy. We often think of Esau's family line as the ones not chosen by God. Yet God seems to take awfully good care of them, right? For here we read about another Joshua-like conquest pulled off for their benefit. And there's more. A similar thing happened when the Kaftorites from Crete invaded and destroyed the Avites who had lived in villages in the area of Gaza. Now we're reading not only, so I remember, not only were the, the, the Philistines uh, associated with this group of people and uh, a particular family line. What family line was that? Ham's family line, right? These people, God pulled off a Joshua-like conquest for them so that they could move from where they were to this area. So let's summarize that for a little bit. Exoduses, plural, and Joshua-like conquests were pulled off for a group of people. God said in Amos 9, verse 7, Are you not like the Ethiopians to me? The Philistines, the Arameans, the Ammonites, the descendants of Esau, the Kaptorites, the Israelites, all of these people were benefited by the gracious love of God, making space for them. God loves to rescue people from tyranny. This is what we learn from the Bible. If we were looking at this map, we would see that There is an area we're very familiar with, right there, Canaan. To get from here over to all this area over here, which is hugely commercial, right? Well, let's include that. Hugely commercial. To get from the north, which is in the upper right, to the bottom left, the south, you had to travel where? Through Canaan, 
There was a natural land bridge there. If you didn't, and you tried to go straight through, say, you're going to run into a little problem. It's called the Red Sea. So in order to do business, in order to make money in the ancient world, you traveled through Canaan, if possible. And in fact, it was a good thing. Because then along the way, whether you're coming from the big you know, population centers and the big commerce centers of the south and the north, uh, Egypt or all the other places, Babylonia, Syria, Persia, all that stuff, if you wanted to travel to the other big population center, big commerce center, you went through Canaan, and along the way, you picked up some of Canaan's merchandise. You either sold some of your own there, or you bought some of theirs, and you did business along the way. Makes sense, right? Profit all you can. More bang for your buck. Shorter distance. The merchants went straight through this area called the Fertile Crescent. Well, what does that mean? So if we blow that up a little bit bigger, who did God populate the Fertile Crescent with? Well, that would be pretty much all of the people that he, that he performed an Exodus-like event for or a Joshua-like conquest for. People who had every reason to love and admire God because of what he did for them. And God has stuffed that area with people that he has done things for so that all the folk who travel from the north and the south to do business or to maybe move would come in contact with potential God-loving people. Now that's an incredible story. Spiritually and geographically, the people who lived in this area were well-situated, remarkably situated, to share their faith with God. So just a reminder again, if you wanted to come from the north, the big areas, and go to the south, you went through Canaan, and what later became Israel, Philistia, Aram, etc., Ammon, Moab. All of these people God did things for. They could very easily have loved God and shared their faith in God with the people around them. Well, this is just looking, of course, at God's love scattered amongst all the different people groups that surface in the story of Genesis 10. This is the big scale picture. What if we, you know, maybe that's too big. Maybe we need to just shrink it down just a little bit, get, get a little bit more specific. So when we look through the Bible and we track down who the Hittites were, we found in 1 Samuel 26, 6, David says to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? King Saul has been chasing David, trying to kill him, right? David does not want to kill Saul in return, but he wants to, let him, he wants to send him a message. I am not hunting you like you are hunting me. If I were, you'd be dead. And so David says, who wants to go down with me? And notice he singles out two people who he thinks are very, not only well equipped, but have the disposition and the skills for the job. One of them is a Hittite. A Hittite. Now it turns out that Joab's brother volunteers for the job real quick. Uh, he was quick on the trigger. Uh, the kind of guy who I think was hoping as we continue reading that he could actually kill Saul. 
David does not allow him to do that. But David picks a Hittite. And then, of course, there's this guy. David, the, the story of David includes 37 guys who are like the Avengers. You hear what I'm saying? They are the tough guys amongst tough guys. They are the best. Now, there's these three guys that are unbelievable. And there's only three of those. But as we keep going, we, we, we filter it down and finally find out about these, this band of 30 guys who are amazing warriors. One of them is Uriah the Hittite, the man David murders so that he can steal his life. We read the story of Uriah the Hittite. How many of you have ever read it? How many of you think Uriah the Hittite was a man of integrity? Well, that'd be every hand that I think raised up, I mean, pretty much, right? I mean, because, man, this guy really shines. Incredible person. The, the Hittites were descendants of whom? Ham. We think of him quite often as the bad guy, and yet, is that always true? Of his people? Of him? Then, even though the Arameans, of course, were descendants of Shem, who we often think of as being, you know, the ancestor of the favored line, many of his descendants did not go on to follow God, yet the Bible speaks fairly well of Aramean people in a number of passages. Do you know this woman, Rebecca? Did you know that she was an Aramean? How about this one, Deuteronomy 26.5, God speaking, you know, through Moses, to the people of Israel, you must then say in the presence of the Lord your God, my ancestor Jacob was a wandering, a wandering what? Aramean, because that's his family lineage, right? We read in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 20 about a particular Aramean. How does Naaman come across to you in the story? He starts out not so good, but then he becomes real good, right? He goes down to the Jordan, and he washes, and he becomes clean of his leprosy, and he comes back, and he is a changed man, a God-fearing, God-loving man. He changes from selfishness to unselfishness. We read then another story that is amazing. The Aramean king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet Elijah, the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him whether I shall recover from this illness. So let me get this straight. Aramean kings knew all about who spoke for God and were quite okay with asking them for help. But it goes on in verse 9. So Hazael went to meet Elijah, taking a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus. Do you know how, how, what kind of quantity he took with him? Forty camel loads. Not a bad gift for a day's work, huh? Now, if we read the story of Naaman, we'll probably figure that Elijah says, no, I don't want the stuff. I'm not the one doing this, you know, uh, God is. But Elijah ends up weeping during this experience. Why? Because he knows that his ale is actually going to murder his own king. He's going to assassinate him. 
I think the whole purpose of weeping was to see if, you know, without it being, you know, a put on, I think it was real, to see if, if you know, God wanted this Azale to not assassinate his king, to, to try to change his heart. But the Babylonians are also loved by God. We learn about Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard in Jeremiah chapter 40. And when we listen to him talk, he says, The Lord your God has brought this disaster on this land, just as he said he would. For these people have sinned against the Lord and disobeyed him, and that is why it happened. And you're thinking, wow, he sounds exactly like Jeremiah, but he's talking to Jeremiah. He's not quoting Jeremiah back to himself. He's saying, look, God has said, you guys just don't have your life together. You cannot govern yourselves. You need help. And we're here to do it. We're going to govern you. Wow, 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 right? It's an amazing story. And then the man goes on to say to Jeremiah, but I'm going to take off your chains and let you go. And if you want to come with me to Babylon, you're welcome. I'll see that you're well cared for. But if you don't want to come, you may stay here. The whole land is before you. Go wherever you like. Sounds like a pretty nice guy, doesn't it? Babylonian. Or how about this one? King Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. And the Babylonians come from which family line? Nimrod, remember, is part of Ham's family. Could we not easily go on and discuss the Persians and the influences of Queen Esther and Mordecai? Or how about King Cyrus? Could we not say a whole lot more also about God's love for that man? The Persians are from whose family line? The Madai from Japheth's family line. Sin has a long reach, it's true. Even after the flood, and, and, and we would have thought things would have been so much better, immediately we find problems with Noah, and we find problems, you know, with Ham. Sin has a long reach, but God's grace is longer and stronger. All peoples are in the loving hands of God, everyone in the world. God cares for all of us, he cares for each one of us. And if we would but trace out some of these family names, we would discover that they have not been forgotten by God. God loves you. He loves me. He, but he loves more than just you and me. He loves everyone in the world. He loves more than just the people of Israel. He loves more than the people of the family line of Shem. Though it's true that Jesus came from that family line. The Bible says that God's gift of Jesus was God's showing us that he loves the entire world. Do we remember that God loves the entire world when we talk to our neighbors, when we talk to the people we work with, the people we go to school with, people we hang out with, our friends? Maybe when we're at the gym or at the store, do we remember that God loves these people? Are we living up to the ideal that God has privileged us with? And that is, of course, that universal truth of sharing our faith with other people. It is the law of God that you and I will share our mindset with other people. What mindset are you sharing? 
with the people around you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us the life story of our world and showing us how different people came to populate different places. We too are a part of these family lines. And Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts such that we, that we will be delighted to follow you and to share you with the people that we come in contact with, to share our faith 